Hello listeners, I wanted to tell you about something that I use and was part of its inception, Joyful.Gifts. Joyful.Gifts is a service that makes giving gifts very easy and joyful. You tell us who you want to give gifts to, set a budget, and then we select buy and ship the gift automatically to every occasion while you have peace of mind. Best of all, you actually save money since the software continuously mines the web for the best prices for you. If you want to give it a try, it's at joyful.gifts. No www, no.com. Just type joyful.gifts in your browser and you're set to go. Thank you. Hello and welcome to the History of the Cards, episode 69, into the 10th century. So we last stopped with the Abbasids, sort of back in Egypt in 905 AD. It was sort of back, rather than back, because the situation would be best described as a headless state. The Abbasids faced a basic problem in ruling Egypt. If they sent enough troops to keep order and enforce the state authority, then whoever is in charge of these troops would just repeat the Ibn Tawlun playbook and break away. And if they don't, well, you get what we have in our hands. A continuous series of disorders and rampant insecurity. And to be fair, even if they wanted to send enough bodies, since the Karmatians were alive and well in Bahrain, posing a great threat to Baghdad, money was extremely tight and all manpower was directed to contain them. So like I said, at best, the Abbasids were sort of back. Running things on the ground were a Madharani family, who were instrumental in the transfer of power, and were kept to be in charge of the fiscal administration. But having no troops to extract taxes, they employed large-scale tax farming and sold the right and the obligation to collect taxes to mostly local influential men. These men would show up in Fustat, an auction will take place to collect taxes from Pacific region, and the highest bidder would literally put his money in a box and get a document authorizing him to collect taxes however he so fit. The Midharani family would then take some of the money for themselves, and send the box as is to Baghdad. So yeah, pretty unsophisticated stuff. On top of that, whatever little troops were available in Egypt, they were not being paid. They didn't even see the money box, which was, as you would expect, playing with fire. To keep them in check, the generals in charge of those troops were granted chunks of lands where they can use its revenue to equip and pay their soldiers without bothering the state. Those troops, now being independently run from their plots of land, became more or less organized gangs, defending their own land and aiming to expand it, rather than keep order and or 
participate in good government. Responding to that state and the arbitrary taxation, the urban and wealthy Muslim merchants resorted to an old tactic used by the Copts under the Byzantines, that is, putting their money in a religious trust, basically an evolved form of putting one's money to start a monastery. Those religious trusts, called Aukaf, plus the lands granted to the soldiers and the lack of interest in land development or even maintenance on the part of the tax farmers, meant that the productivity of the land was decreasing pretty quickly. So, in less than a decade from 905, we hear about famine in the land. For the actual governors, it was basically a series of unimportant and forgettable ones, interrupted with minor rebellions and uprisings. Even the word governor is probably an overstatement, as the Mosque of Amr, the symbolic seat of government, where the governor led the Friday prayer, was closed due to the inability to keep it secure. By 914 AD, the Fatimids, who were still pretty new at this caliphate thing, attempted to conquer Egypt. A good Turkish officer, a potential new Ibn Tawlun, managed to rebuild himself. They took Alexandria and the Fayyum, but could not move any further when that officer fought back. Their problem was the lack of supplies and being so far away from their home base in modern Tunisia. For his competent defense of Egypt, the Abbasids removed the Turkish officer and appointed another forgettable governor. He was too good and too popular to be given command of Egypt. Five years later, the Fatimids returned again, and the Abbasids were forced to return the Turkish officer back to Egypt. And again, he drove back the Fatimids and for his efforts, the Abbasids removed him. His replacement was kicked out of Egypt by the soldiers pretty quick so, and Takin, that good Turkish officer, returned for the third and final time, as he stayed in Egypt for the next ten years, giving the province a veneer of order. A veneer is all what he could gather so. Things were still bad enough that the main mosques in Fustat stayed closed. When he died, his son attempted to follow him, but an alliance between the Mithrani family and Takin's military protege prevented the dynastic succession after a brief civil war. A civil war that eventually invited the Fatimids to attempt their third invasion. A really close one that saw the Fatimids control Alexandria and managed to destroy the fortress that Ibn Talun built in an island next to Fustat. But again, their supply lines were too extended for a long war, and eventually the king's military protege, Muhammad Ibn Tughi, managed to take back Egypt after a lengthy campaign. For his efforts, the Caliph in Baghdad confirmed his de facto rule and gave him the title Al-Ikhshid, a title that means the servant, 
but really signified independent rule as a prince. Now, this was a significant pivot, as for the last three decades, Abbasid policy would have been to immediately remove him rather than confirm his rule. But they finally gave up, as the Cambridge History of Egypt put it. Quote, the caliphate had reached the conclusion that only an independent prince who, along with his descendants, assumed personal responsibility for the province would be capable of defending it effectively against the Fatimids. In other words, there needed to be a buffer between the Sunni Abbasids and the Shia Fatimids. And Egypt would be that buffer. And by Egypt, I really mean the old Ibn Talun territory of Egypt and large parts of Syria. Now, al Ikhshid was confirmed in his position in 936 and consolidated his grip over Syria by 937, 32 years after the last of the Toluns. So yeah, we just went over three decades in five minutes. But more importantly, when al Ikhshid took over, the memory of Ibn Tawlun was alive and well, and he went out of his way to emulate his rule after him. He was no Ibn Tawlun so, and he ended up losing northern Syria to a dynasty known as the Hamnids, who, for those who are fans of the history of Byzantium, would carry on the flag of jihad, led by a semi-famous warlord, Saif al who we will get to in a second. But since we just fly through 32 years of chaos, I would like to briefly catch us up with the affairs of the Coptic Patriarchy, who we last left with the death of Bob Khalil sometime around the turn of the century. His successor Gabriel was ordained in 909, right in the beginning of all the chaos. He was a long-time biased monk who loved solitude and did his best to avoid the world and its affairs. When he assumed the patriarchy, his outlook in life never changed, preferring to let things go on autopilot while he continued to stay in the monastery, which may have worked in a different time and place, but his time could not afford an absent patriarch. Right away, the Alexandrian clergy demanded their 1,000 dinars yearly payment that Khalil has agreed to when he sold their property, which Gabriel responded to by making a quick tour in Egypt and, to put it bluntly, nakedly selling the ordination of priests and bishops. In the words of Michael, Bishop of Tennis, an author of his biography, quote, the circumstances made it necessary for him to journey through the sea and to violate the canons, and the word of God became as a merchandise which is sold for dinars to him who asks to be ordained a priest. End quote. Once this tour was finished, the mandatory church test that came early in Khalil's patriarchy was enforced on all the Christians in Egypt. It was paid to the bishop, who in turn 
forwarded some of it to the patriarchy, naturally, keeping some. So, when you bought the title of a priest or a bishop, it was not just an empty title, it was sort of an investment. You see, the priests collected the tests, which went to the bishop, and finally to the patriarchy, with each layer collecting its cut, or salary slash living expenses, if we were to be less blunt. So in essence, the money spent to buy the office was a sort of annuity, put a large sum of money now, and get paid regularly over a lifetime. A good financial arrangement for the most part, also super destructive to the collective identity of the Copts. The political instability and this whole my priest is there because he bought the office led to a steady trickle of conversions, where when the Fatimids finally took over in the 960s AD, the Copts would be decidedly a minority. And as a result, the Fatimids would be super comfortable letting them be. They were no longer a political or a demographic threat. Rather, for the Shia Fatimids, they were a demographic asset to help manage the majority Sunni population. Any kinds of percentages is dangerous territory, since it's all speculation. But this is where the Christian population of Egypt probably went under 40%. With the Alexandrian clergy satisfied, Gabriel stayed on as the patriarch for 11 years, until 920 AD, with most of the time spent in his monastery, rarely ever going to Alexandria, and probably never going to Fustat. His successor, Cosmas, was also patriarch during the chaotic decades until Al-Ikhshid took over. Nothing systemic changed with his elevation, and simony was still a fact of life. Also, Cosmos seemed to be more hands-on, as he actively communicated with the Ethiopians and ordained them a bishop. But the bishop ended up mired in an Ethiopian succession crisis and went back to Egypt, leaving Ethiopia again without an officially ordained bishop. And if you are wondering, the usual procedure in these situations is for the king to pick someone and basically make him the bishop of Ethiopia. Not super canonical, but it obviously worked really well for the king. Cosmas stayed on for another 12 years, dying in 832. He was followed by a monk who was a native Alexandrian, Macarius. Now, Macarius is a bit of an enigma, and it is really disappointing that we do not know much about him. He stayed in his office for a long 20 years, basically all through the reign of al-Ikhshid and his successor. Pretty good and stable years. Were things better during his reign for the Copts? Or was it a continuation of the post Shinuda the Stuart mediocre strings of patriarchs? We don't know, and probably no one does. All what is written about him 
is a small paragraph where his mother rebuked him for accepting the office. As she presumably said, describing the agony of the office pretty well, quote, You are joyful at what you have received, but I grieve for you. Would that that they had brought you to me dead than that you should come to me with this empty glory? Regard not, my son, what you have received and rejoice, but weep and grieve, because you shall be answerable for the sins of all these people who glorify you. And with this apt description, we are caught up. Al-Ikhshid was accepted by the Caliphate as an independent ruler of Egypt and Syria, with ability to keep the revenues inside his domain. And Macarius, being on the start of a long reign, where things would be somewhat politically stable, in Egypt at least. You see, while Egypt finally got stability, Al-Ikhshid's reign was characterized with a non-stop struggle for the control of Syria. Like I said before, he tried to be Ibn Talun, but in a way, ended up the complete opposite. He won a lot of military battles, with great material and human cost, but in the end, was nothing to show for, at least in Syria. From 938 to 942, he fought a warlord supported by Baghdad over Damascus, and sort of won when the warlord was assassinated by the governor of Mosul. This governor was from the Hamadani clan, who were becoming the protector of the caliph, or his masters, depending on your perspective. This dynamic evolved into on-and-off fighting between al-Ikhshid and the Hamadanis, in particular the brother of the governor of Mosul, Saif al-Dawla, who was the leading military man of the family. It gets super complicated here, as Saif al-Dawla would be fighting factions in Baghdad, fighting Byzantium and al-Ikhshid, all in the same time, not to mention the Karmatians were still active. Eventually, by 944, after this on-and-off fighting, al-Ikhshid would try to make a serious offer to have the Caliph move to Fustat in a bid to replace the Hamadanis as his protector, but the Caliph would refuse. Essentially, the same story of Ibn Tawlum. Unlike Ibn Tawlum, his failing to convince the Caliph to come to Egypt would force him to undertake a large campaign to pacify Syria and get Saif al-Dawla out of it. He would succeed on the battlefield, but it became very clear that northern Syria was not worth the trouble to hold. Facing a resurrected Byzantium to the north and a caliphate which at any time can assert their claims to the east, al-Ikhshid decided to let Saif al-Dawla have it and end the fighting. Just like Egypt was a buffer between the Fatimids and the Abbasids, the Hamadanis would be the buffer against Byzantium. A peace treaty was signed where 1. 
the caliph confirmed al-Ikhshid's independent rule for him and his descendants for the next 30 years. 2. Al-Ikhshid will give up all claims to northern Syria, but keep Damascus and Palestine. 3. A tribute would be paid from al-Ikhshid to Saif al-Dawla to finance jihad against the Byzantines. So yeah, for us, al-Ikhshid for most of his reign was occupied in Syria. Egypt stayed peaceful, but again, not much investment were undertaken and the land's productivity continued to decline. Whatever extra money came from the tax revenue in Egypt was immediately burnt in the chaos of Syria. But we have a peace treaty now, right? Things should get better. No, not really. Within a couple of years of the treaty, Al-Ikhshid died, and his lackluster son succeeded him in 946. Seeing the opportunity, Sefet Dawla reneged on the agreement and immediately attacked Damascus and took it, and then continued moving toward Palestine. And this is where the ruler of Egypt for the next 20 years would show up. Al-Ikhshid's son, who I won't trouble you with the name, since he doesn't really matter, had no chance against Saif al-Dawla. The commander of his father's army, so, a black eunuch, given the name Abu al-Musk Kafur, was a fascinating individual, and he had a few ideas about winning the war. He took charge, and more or less relegated the son to a figurehead position. Next, he lured Saif al-Dawla to a bad strategic position in Palestine, truly defeated him, took back Damascus in a quick march, and continued moving toward the home base of the Hamidans in Syria, Aleppo. But a black eunuch in the Middle East, leading armies and ruling, even behind the figurehead, was a tough pill to swallow for many folks. A local governor in Egypt rebelled, which forced Kafur to negotiate with Saif al-Dawla. The old treaty was more or less confirmed, but the tribute was cancelled. The Hamadanis will get everything north of Damascus, and Kafur will keep Egypt and the rest of Syria. Here, Kafur, a black eunuch slave, is ruling Egypt, and will continue to do so for the next 20 years, outlasting every single governor since the Arab conquest, including the great Ibn Tawlun. Quite an achievement, especially since he was absolutely despised by many of the elite of the world. A famous Arab poet of the time, and one of the best of all times, Al-Mutanabbi, sums up the feeling toward Kafur in one of his many satirical poems searing into him. Quote, Whoever taught the eunuch Negro nobility, his white masters or his loyal ancestors, or was it his ear bleeding at the hand of the slave broker, or was it his worse? seeing that for two pennies he would be rejected. 
Kafur did not have many fans. That contempt against Kafur extended to the Muslim historians chronicling his reign as well. He was described as physically repulsive with a stench, plus having a deformed and scarred figure. His name is basically a play on comfort and musk, things he presumably used to hide his stench. But really, by all objective accounts, he seemed to be a good leader who was just dealt a really bad hand and still managed to survive. He, to make up for his unpopularity, went out of his way to cultivate religious scholars and judges and shower them with gifts. Further, he stayed loyal to the Lakshid sons and did not just get rid of them at the first opportunity until he essentially died. In the same time, he heavily recruited black slaves to serve as his personal army, as he could not trust the soldiers of Al-Ikhshid, who had their own plots of lands and did not need to answer to him. The black soldiers, like their master, were despised, and street fights involving them were a daily occurrence. To his credits, it never evolved to be more than that. The main problems in Kafur's reign, the bad hands that he were dealt, were regular famines and arrested Nubia. Like we mentioned before, no investment in the land have taken place in Egypt since Ibn Ta'lum, and the productivity was steadily decreasing. By Kafur's reign, we get documented famines in 949, 952, 955, and an absolutely brutal famine that, quote, emptied the land of Egypt between 963 and 968. This last one would finally deliver Egypt to the Fatmids, but we will get to that next episode. For now, in addition to the famines, in the southern borders of Egypt, serious raids were taking place, probably linked to the bad floods of the Nile that caused the famine and pushed the usually peaceful settlers of the area to become more aggressive. Modern Aswan and its surrounding, the southernmost city of Egypt, was depopulated in 956 by a huge raid, which, according to some sources, was encouraged by the Fatmids. In response, Kafur organized his own raid and undertook, quote, an expedition of extermination 200 kilometers deep south of Aswan. To the east, Syria was still threatened by the Karmatians, and the major cities there, either on their own or by the orders of Kafur, started paying tribute to keep the Karmatians away. Lastly, Saif al-Dawla died in 967, after several successive defeats by the Byzantines, who were hitting one of their beaks under the emperor Nikephorus Phocas, 
better known as the Whiteness of the Saracens, which meant the buffer zone in northern Syria collapsed, and Kafur had to deal with the Byzantines as well. Clashes that did not go well for him, as between 960 and 963, the Egyptian navy was completely destroyed by the Byzantine fleet. This, while it was good for Byzantium, was bad news for the Christians in Egypt, who for the first time were facing mob violence and destruction of their property as a backlash from the defeats. A scenario that will essentially repeat again and again from this point to the 20th century. A defeat for Muslim armies by Christian outsiders would usually lead to a wave of violence against the Copts, and in that specific case, the Melkites, who still maintained a veneer of connection to Constantinople. Kafur was in no position to confront the mobs, as the administrative state of Egypt was in a bad shape. The soldiers, who hold their own lands, basically resisted any reforms or centralization measures to and nail. And Kafur didn't really have any means of legitimacy and relied on force to rule. Force that meant recruiting more soldiers and either coming up with a way to pay them or giving them land to pay themselves, forming a vicious cycle of financial instability. In the middle of that financial instability, a Jewish money dealer from Baghdad came to the attention of Kafur for his administrative and financial abilities. Ibn Kilis, that Jewish merchant, was extremely talented and he presumably impressed Kafur by memorizing the yields of all the agricultural districts in Egypt as well as their taxation yield. He was quickly elevated to become vizier and chief financial administrator of the land. Also, to placate the religious judges and imams, which Kafur was keen to keep them happy, Ibn Kilis had to convert to Sunni Islam. But it seems to have been a pretty superficial conversion, as a couple of years later he converted to Shia Islam when the Fatimids came. Remember this name, Ibn Kilis. He would be super important in the next couple of episodes. Now, this brings us around 965. Full six decades where we started this episode. A not so great start to the 10th century. And, with the exceptions of a few good years here and there, we basically have a straight line of decline in prosperity population, and the relevance of Egypt. The decline of the province was naturally mirrored in the day-to-day affairs of the Copts, even magnified. Worse, the Coptic patriarchy was in a bad shape, as simony was rampant and systemic, and patriarchs were either absent or mediocre. Next time, we would reach the bottom of that well, where it will get so bad 
a patriarch would be assassinated, not by the government or even the mob, but by one of his clergy. We sort of skipped that patriarch. He was elevated in 952, within the time frame of this episode. But I decided to skip him today, to give his story its due next time. Also, next time would be when the eunuch Kafur will die, which would initiate a succession crisis and ultimately leading the Fatimids to take Egypt without much fighting. Thank you for listening. Farewell and until next time. Mm-hmm.